Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Mark Lance, professor of philosophy and professor of justice and peace at Georgetown University, and he is here to discuss anarchism. Mark Lance, welcome back to Elucidations. Welcome, thanks. Good to see you guys again. Why don't we just begin by talking about what anarchism is? What, where does the idea of anarchism come from, historically? So the word, you know, obviously is a negative word. You find it in Plato, anarchism. So a rejection of rule. There's no arche in society. So no, no uh, it's a rejection of the legitimacy of organizing society around one group ruling another group. As a political philosophy or more broadly social philosophy, it really arises in the 19th century and is seen positively as a, theory of organization and the theory that we should not organize ourselves by one group coercively ruling over another group, no matter how that's institutionalized in society, whether it's institutionalized around economic power or gender power or age power or political power or whatever, but rather we should organize ourselves through cooperative organizations that embody a kind of equality, in in the words of the great 19th century anarchist Kropotkin, through mutual aid, through cooperative involvement in the institutions that matter to us. So there's different forms of anarchism historically that have arisen. People have different specific ideas about how you would do this, but the common core is as a kind of radical democracy, that legitimacy of a way of being together comes from our all participating in that from a place of equality and a place of uh, cooperation and participation. I see. So I guess the driving idea there is that there's a difference between everybody cooperating because they fear retribution from a government authority and everybody cooperating because like, that's what they want to do and that's what they're supposed to do. Right. Exa- yeah. Well, yes. And I, I, I actually think it's important to distinguish the second two. Uh, I mean, in a certain sense, you know, in some very broad abstract sense, there's sort of three reasons why a person will do something, either because someone's forcing them to or because they just happen to sort of want to as an desire, or because they've decided that it's the right thing to do. And the first one, I take it seems intuitively to anyone to be illegitimate. You're being forced to do something together with other people. The second just isn't going to always happen. We're not all going to have the same desires in any reasonably large society. So if you want to be fair and just, you have to get everyone to have enough buy-in into the social project that they recognize this is what we ought to do. So, you know, if 10 of us want to go out to dinner tonight, obviously we're, you know, if I just say I'm in charge, I'll be the czar and (laughs) decide where we're going to dinner, the right reaction is going to be, well, 
you know, piss off, you know, <laughs> not, not that. It's very unlikely that we'll just by pure chance all want the same thing. So do we vote? What if, you know, five of us want to go to some restaurant and four of us just can't stand the idea of that restaurant or it's a, it violates our religion to go to that restaurant or some? Does the majority get to just decide? Well, then, no, no reasonable group going to a restaurant would decide like that. You talk about it. And someone would say, well, you know, I, I, I keep kosher. And someone says, I'm a vegetarian. And then someone says, and I hate this restaurant. And so we find something that we're all, you know, we talk about it. And that's the sort of model of how you get to social coordination in a way that's non-coercive. And uh, in one way or another, any, any anarchist theory is going to try to scale that up as far as it needs to be scaled up to have a society and make do with that sort of organization that you find in groups going to lunch or groups of housemates or churches or clubs or you know, any place where no one really has the authority to force someone to participate, you'll find these modes of organization already operating. So this is one of the themes that a lot of anarchist writers want to talk about is that granted we have, you know, states and billionaires and sexism and armies and all of this, but in our daily life, in a huge range of cases, we're interacting with one another in a very different way, in a way that no one has real coercive authority over anyone else. Now, this can be a little, there's more subtle forms of that, but, but by and large, you know, if we want to have a church together, I can't make anyone come to the church. I, you know, even if we've designated someone as the minister, if he doesn't get buy-in from his parishioners, then he's just a guy standing on a soapbox chanting. So, um, you know, we all have practice at modes of cooperation that aren't authoritarian. We just sometimes forget that there's actually historical precedence for letting those be the, the sole form of organization. So uh, many people are dissatisfied with the way their political leaders exercise authority. Mm-hmm. And some people think we need to vote better people into office, or we need to more radically form a new political party such that we can have authorities that are responsive to our interests rather than the elites they serve. With anarchy, there is an opposition to the state itself. So something like the solution I just suggested is inadequate. Could you say more about why the state itself is problematic entity? Sure. So there's two points. One is sort of more specific and the other more general. So specifically, first of all, anarchism it certainly opposes states in one sense of state. It doesn't oppose large-scale organization. but so we could quibble about what exactly a state is. But in, in their current form, any of the forms, you know, Western so-called democracy or totalitarianism or religious states, all of these we want to reject. But we're not just rejecting states. We're rejecting all structures that serve in whatever way to give one group of people a kind of institutionalized power over another. So all anarchists are anti-capitalist. Not to say that all anarchists, some anarchists would be willing to allow for markets of individual proprietors, but the idea that we could accumulate the kind of private property that allows me to employ a thousand people and influence elections and things of this sort is going to be out for any anarchist. 
So the first point is that in, if you have a society with radically differential levels of power, you simply can't get these mythical, wonderful <laughs> leaders elected, right? I mean, the very idea that in a world with, you know, billionaires and then masses of people without health care, struggling living day to day, who can't afford housing, that they're going to somehow elect this benevolent person who's going to look out for all of them, strikes most anarchists as, as just silly. I mean, of course the people with money are going to have more influence over the people that end up getting elected. They may have to, you know, do some work to get them elected, but once they're in there, they, you know, they, there's differential access to them. So just as a sort of prediction, this idea of wonderfully benevolent people being systematically selected for by some system embedded into a system of radical inequality strikes anarchists as a pipe dream. But yes, even if we imagine that we could somehow magically, you know, <laughs> reincarnate, you know, Jesus and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and whoever else and put them into a little little uh, tribunal and give them power over all of us, we still wouldn't be happy with that. Because and, and this is a very crucial kind of aspect of anarchism that emerges over time is a vision of who the individual is, right? So you know, often anarchism is posed as preferring the individual over social organization. And I think that's ultimately just the wrong way to think about it. Anarchists want to reject both the kind of individual that emerges under an authoritarian sort of state who's going to be essentially a follower, someone who does what they're told. And again, that's completely independent of whether the person telling them what to do is telling them good things or not. But, you know, essentially this is a model of a child. <laughs> being told what to do by a benevolent parent. So we, we want to reject both that model of human life for the individual and the kinds of social organization that go along with constructing that sort of psychology, that sort of relationship to life. And so the suggestion is that it's part of being an autonomous and valuable human being that you take part in the decisions that affect you, that you not delegate your, your autonomy and your humanity to someone else who will set up the rules for your life, e again, even if they're doing it in a sort of really, really nice way. So yeah, anarchists are committed to the idea that we become the kind of people that humans are capable of becoming only by participating in their own governance. And governance here meant very, very broadly from decisions about your sexuality to economic decisions. So in the economic workplace, the anarchists believe that everyone working in a factory should take part in the decisions about how that factory is going to be run. It should be run by counsel of all the workers. And to say that Jones owns the factory ultimately comes to the claim that Jones has a right to tell all the other workers how to spend however many hours a day they are engaged in productive activity. And our view is, no, that's just translating into the economic sphere the idea that there's some king that gets to tell us what to do, and we, we reject that. This is very interesting. So the, the importance of a person being directly involved in the decisions is not just a pragmatic consideration. If you don't do this, then it's going to open the gate for people to come and make decisions for you, and you'll be dominated, and, right. and so on. It's actually a view of what it 
is like to live a good life or a full life or a meaningful life or something like this to be directly involved in making decisions about yourself, the community around you, your organizations. Is that right? That's right. I mean, at the very least, that's the way I see it. I mean, that's a view I'd want to stand behind. I think that view is, in fact, pretty consistent across the history of anarchism. Certainly not every prominent writer under the label has made that argument. Some do it just in pragmatic terms. There are also anarchists who who are sort of thought of as individualist anarchists who mostly talk in terms of just leaving everybody else alone. But both in the theory, as the sort of theory develops through the 19th and 20th century, and in the practice of the way anarchist or very close to anarchist communities develop when they actually have existed in society, I think this has always been a very common assumption. So for example, in Spain, uh, from roughly 1880 to the 1930s, when all of this was crushed by Franco with you know the aid of the US and the Soviet Union, and uh, much of Spain was dominated by the left, broadly left, and there was a lot of internal conflict between the authoritarian left that was aligned with the Soviet Union, the communists, and the anarchists. At this point, you know, people explicitly referred to, so Bakunin, who was one of the founders of the concept in the 19th century, he was the other leader of the first international with Marx. And the standard distinction between him and Marx was that he was a libertarian socialist and Marx was the authoritarian socialist. And that way of of drawing the difference there, they both rejected capitalism, both believed that property had to be controlled by the people at large, but the Marxists generally took that, at least in the short term, to mean that some small group, the party, would control that for the benefit of the whole society, whereas the anarchists said, look, you're just reinstituting a new power structure and we need to do everything on our own. Anyway, the point is there was quite a lot of back and forth between the anarchists and the Marxists over the 50, 60 years of the Spanish experiment. And one of the themes that, that they always fought about was the anarchists taking morality very seriously, whereas the, the Marxists generally claimed that once we got the right political structures in place, the right institutional structures, and the right economic structures, then kind of everything followed from this. And, and the anarchists said, no, it's absolutely essential that we be moral human beings, that we learn to run our lives well, and this is a process of enculturation. It doesn't have to be authoritarian enculturation. It doesn't have to be some father figure beating you over the head, but you, you know, if you want to be, so you find these wonderful discussions of sexism. Most of the Spanish anarchists rejected marriage, which at the time was very controlled by the Spanish church, which is very right wing. But they took questions of sexual morality and how to treat one another enormously seriously. And there was this long discussions, you know, you meet in the union hall and you have what, you know, these really sophisticated discussions in the 19-teens about sexism and how to learn not to be a sexist prick. And the idea was that, you know, you don't just get out of this by signing on to some feminist manifesto. This is all inscribed into the practices you've learned in a sexist society about how to treat women. And there was a sense, okay, we need to unlearn this. We need to you know, I mean, nowadays everyone's talking about uh, implicit bias and unconscious racism and sexism and things. Yeah, the anarchists were very understood this, that if you grow up in an authoritarian society, in a capitalist society, a sexist society, whatever, 
you'll have trained your psychology in a certain way and you need to relearn that. And the only way you come to be you know, moral in this sense is through participating in practices that give equal weight to what women are saying and what men are saying. You don't just have the Central Committee sign on to an anti-sexism statement and then let the boys implement that. That's just not going to work. So to go back to that, where should we go to, out to eat question. So we said that, okay, obviously it wouldn't be fair to just stipulate that I'm the autocratic leader of the group and I get to decide regardless of what anyone else thinks. And we also thought, well, it would also be kind of weird to do it by majority vote because what if the majority votes against the very, very, very strong preferences of some people in the group? Mm-hmm. You know, what we said in that example is that the thing to do is for everybody to talk it out and come to a reasonable compromise by going over the priorities and seeing if they can come up with a solution that works in context. That seems like a great plan for groups of people going to restaurants, but it's kind of hard to imagine how it scales up because you know a group of five people can have a conversation, but obviously a group of whatever, tens of thousands or millions of people can't all sit down in a room together and come to a reasonable arrangement. So, I mean, is that a problem for the... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> of course it is. Um, to a certain extent, the actual work of constructing an anarchist theory is the engineering of these sorts of non-authoritarian ideas into whatever's needed to run a society. So there's sort of a couple different themes that you find in anarchists, and there's different different people will focus more on one or the other. So the first claim will be that we don't need to scale up as much stuff as we actually do. There's always, and I take it any anarchist, a preference for localism. If a decision can be made locally and doesn't fundamentally affect anyone else, then make it locally. We don't all have to have one educational system or whatever, uh, you know, one food production system. Okay. It's a view of anarchism that capitalists have foisted on us, the idea that growth is always good. Growth isn't always good. It's not always bad. We're not primitivists in the sense that we think, you know, we should all go back to being hunter-gatherer bands. But, you know, for any given bit of growth, it's an open question whether this is conducive to human flourishing or not. And so, to some extent, you know, most anarchists envision a society that would be more centered around your local community, your local group, probably have a bit smaller population and fewer, less, you know, stuff. But how, where you draw that line is hard to say. And of course, some decisions are obviously going to affect large groups of people. So the typical sort of starting point is to build structures that allow for a kind of federation. So maybe we have our little town meeting with 50 people where we talk through some issues, we send a representative. Now, this is a very different sense of representative than someone in the House of Representatives. That is to say, we don't elect someone who then goes and does whatever they want to do for some fixed period of time and hence becomes subject to all kinds of forces. Rather, they're merely a spokesperson for us. So they go to a group where 50 of these groups of 50 people have sent one representative. They have a democratic discussion. This person will have been empowered by our group to make certain kinds of arguments, to push certain ways, maybe to make certain compromises if necessary. And then they come back to us for ratification of this. And so there's a constant uh, tying back to the original group, but through, and then you can have as many levels of that as you need. Again, granted, this is time consuming. It's not as efficient as having a dictator just decide things. So you'll want to have as few decisions going on at the higher levels as possible. 
But through that process of federation, you keep letting people merely be the temporary spokesperson for the will of the underlying group that they represent in this sense. By the way, I mean, a philosopher, Todd May, has written quite a lot about this theme of representation and the two sorts of representation and as themes in a whole range of philosophers. But the second element, in addition to being tied to the group, is that then you don't have one person who's always the voice of this group, right? So, you know, it's like we might send Matt up today to go to that group, but tomorrow we send someone else. And this goes back to the idea that the kind of person we are gets trained into us through the sorts of things we do. So, you know, another people often ask anarchists, well, what do you do about some crazed rapist or criminal or something? I mean, this is, it's really the same point. Uh, I mean, again, one thing anarchists are going to say is that a huge amount of sort of crime and antisocial behavior happens precisely because we have a radically inegalitarian society, right? People are not going to be as inclined to steal goods in a society that isn't obsessed with material goods and in which some people have vastly more of them than others. If property is shared collectively, you've got no incentive to steal. And similarly for lots and lots of other, you know, the drug war, say, is just not going to be an issue in an anarchist society. So the first step is you say a lot of what we think of as crime just simply is created for us by the authoritarian structures of society. But beyond that, you know, people say, well, can you coerce someone into doing something? And the answer is sure. It's anarchists are not necessarily pacifists or people who believe that you can do whatever you want. If someone, for whatever reason, is behaving in a destructive way, assaulting their girlfriend, say, uh, anarchists can deal with that in whatever, everything's on the table, the same things that are on the table for the state. Everything from kicking this person out of society to locking them up to, I mean, many anarchists would push for a broader range than that, things like maybe uh, counseling and conflict transformation and making amends. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, you know, models of more civilized ways to deal with bad behavior than just tossing people into a jail. But in principle, if someone really is impossible to deal with and keeps coming back and assaulting us, maybe we'll toss them in a jail. The point that's crucial, though, is that we will never institutionalize the role of cop or jailer. We may have to get together and say we have to restrain this person. But that doesn't mean that, you know, your job in society now is to be the cop who goes around and restrains people because that then constructs you as having a certain kind of institutionalized power over me as opposed to just the society saying, geez, you know, this has got to stop. So the key is that we never are going to try to institutionalize hierarchical distinctions in us. Again, you know, similarly, we of course we'll have some division of labor. Uh, you're not going to be an expert plumber and an expert surgeon and an expert everything else. Uh, who was it who said this? I think it was actually Kropotkin, I forget, but someone said, do you believe in authority? He said, of course I believe in authority. When I want a new pair of shoes, I'm going to defer to the authority of the cobbler. And when I'm sick, I'll defer to the authority of the doctor. But this is his earned expertise. And what you don't have is the idea that because you're a good doctor, you get the sort of economic power that lets you you know, run the AMA and decide who else can learn to be a doctor. No, your goal has to be always to spread your knowledge as much as possible and to share in these. You know, so so uh, one 
defense of a strong authoritarian state is the Hobbesian one, that mm-hmm. people have a lot of nasty qualities, and if mm-hmm. you don't have a state regulating that, it's going to be a war of all against all. Right. So you started to touch on this, but I would invite you to say more. How much do anarchists imagine that these uglier aspects of humans will be transformed under anarchy or an anarchist system, and how much will just need to be dealt with in different ways? Sure. There's different views on this to some extent. So if I could trace this a little bit historically, so, you know, again, mentioning Kropotkin was the big foe of Hobbes, and he actually went out and studied what they called at the time primitive societies, but non-industrialized roving bands and things, and he found as a sort of generalization, I think it's still perfectly well assumed, they tend to be vastly less violent than states do. You may sometimes find violence, but I mean, it's actually kind of funny that people have this fear that if we were out in the woods searching for berries that we'd be at each other's throat. But we never ask, who actually starts all those wars and holocausts and genocides and things of that sort? I mean, it's really not the hunter-gatherers who are doing that sort of thing. So Kropotkin's view is that people are innately collective animals that we, which is surely some truth to, right? I mean, we are almost uniquely incapable of living on our own as small creatures, right? For the first two or three years, we're just completely incompetent. We would die immediately without the support of other humans. And there's almost no animal that has such a long, necessary you know, social incubation period, right? You know, typical monkey, you can at least stick it on a tree branch and it'll stay there. <laughs> Try that with a baby. Um, you know, it falls off and then is eaten by the... You know, most anarchists are going to simply say, look, the empirical evidence about humans is we're capable of a whole huge range. Humans can be unbelievably kind and cooperative and brilliant and wonderful, and they can be unimaginably evil. We're plastic creatures, and certainly a lot of these things are engendered by the social structure around us. If you're brutalized and enculturated into, say, a drug gang with a brutal leader, you're probably going to take up, you know, violent relations to other people as your mode of interaction, and you may become a very bad person. Uh, You know, if you grow up in the Quaker meeting, you're very likely to grow up a different kind of human being. So, you know, most people these days who want to develop anarchism don't want to base it on some any kind of idea of fixed human nature that humans are just a certain way. What we are, if we have a nature, is that we're there's certainly ways in which we have tendencies to be cooperative, but we can sometimes be competitive and we and our view is that uh, we should together cooperatively encourage the best in each other and make ourselves into the best people we can be. There will be cases where that doesn't work because of whatever psychosis or unexpected outcomes or something, then we collectively together try to deal with that. But I mean, to think of the problem as something like on the order of, you know, what do you, if you're in a philosophy club and somebody's being an asshole and it's dominating and being mean to other people, what do you do? You don't shoot them or put them in jail. You maybe have an intervention and you talk about, I mean, I, when I first got into philosophy, I'd been a real nerdy kid who was on the margins of <laughs> high school society, got beat up a lot, suddenly realized I was really good at this arguing thing. 
And I could just, you know, humiliate other students at Ohio State any time I wanted to in the context of a philosophy class. And two other students and one of my professors sat me down and said, Mark, you're being a d <laughs> I mean, you're just, that's no kind of way to be. We know you're smart. It's okay. Now chill out and why don't you use that to try to teach other people. And, and I was like, oh, I'm being like those bullies who beat me up in the hallways in high school. I'm just doing it in a different form. Well, that was a perfectly anarchist intervention. They didn't threaten to kick me out of school if I did this or anything like that. They, we talked and they explained why I was being a jerk. And, you know, I mean, so I, I don't mean it to, to make it sound all Pollyanna. There's very hard cases and figuring out how to deal with people who are, say, being sexual predators in political organizations is a very, you know, hard problem. But, you know, to write it off as the standard NRA trope, well, there's the bad people and the good people, and we just have to protect ourselves from the bad people, that's something we just reject. There's no essentialized, uh, you know, people that are essentially bad and good. There's, there's humans, and we're complex, and we're messed up in lots of ways, and we're good in lots of ways, and we need to figure out together how to <laughs> encourage the good and get rid of the bad. And I think of the idea of that there's some human nature is always just laziness. It's really intellectual laziness. It's like instead of tracking out what the actual problems are, where they come from, what we can do about them, you just say, ah, there it is, it's just fixed. So I can imagine someone thinking that, you know, really the only way for a society to progress is via decisions made by a democratically elected state. And the example that comes to mind here is something like massive civil rights legislation. So when we talked earlier about how, you know, maybe one of the anarchist slogans is, you know, stay local. Um, mm -hmm. We can imagine somebody having the worry that, well, does that mean that if some local community, for example, decides they all want to stick with their homophobic practices, even though the larger community to which they belong is trying to push some sort of civil rights legislation to deal with that, you might think that the recommendation to go local is kind of a recommendation to let morally problematic provincialism be or something. Sure. Um, it, do you think there's anything to that worry? Well, there is, of course. I mean, yeah. let's distinguish two cases. Uh, you said everybody wants to stick with their homophobia. Do the gay folks in the community want to stick with it? <laughs> um, probably not. They're probably getting beaten up and excluded from things and all. So in that case, of course, there's always room for solidarity, for going in and saying, how can we support you in your struggles against this authoritarian institution here? So, I mean, remember, anarchism is a revolutionary practice. It's not, I'm painting the sort of the society as one where we're, it's cooperative and, and engaged, and a lot of my own work is on ways that even the revolutionary parts of anarchism can be nonviolent. But there's going to be coercion, right? I mean, if you're going to um, not to be crude, but if you're going to, you know, tie Matthew Shepard up to the barbed wire fence, then I'm going to try to stop you in any way I can, because he's not agreeing to that. And so most of the time when you hear this trope of, well, this local community all wants to keep to their oppressive practice, what that really means is that a, a certain elite in that local community wants to keep, t you know, you find this from like authoritarian uh, leaders in various countries in the East will say, well, it's just a Western value to have, you know, whatever, like peasants 
talk. And then you go talk to the peasants, and they're not so sure that this is just. Now, that's, again, not to say that there aren't ways of engaging with those communities that are condescending and are, in fact, bringing in Western values. You often see, you know, famous examples of, you know, Western feminists, like, trying to convince Muslim women that the hijab is the greatest form of oppression and that they should be all worked up about this. And they're like, you know, that's not really our agenda. And I think a respectable person at that point listens to the oppressed you allegedly are trying to help and, and needs to figure out whether we're just inscribing our own conceptions on these things. But look, let's suppose there is a practice in this local community that really everybody endorses, you know, say the, the women have just so internalized what I would take to be a sexist role that they say, yep, it's fine, I want to follow my man and be subservient and all of this. In the long run, I don't think you make things better by enforcing a change on that from the outside. You might make it better in this one regard, but at the same time, what you do is you further reinstitutionalize the authority that some other group has over you. And so you may, you know, okay, maybe now your marriage is a little different, but your relation to this central state is different too, and the central state is more powerful than it was. So this brings us to a really important theme in anarchism of the unity of means and ends, which ties up with this, look, we're always reconfiguring ourselves as we go about fighting a political change, and this idea of direct action, that the people involved in the oppression should always be the ones to change it. So here's a standard kind of example, something I've actually been involved in. You've got poor housing project with a bunch of fairly uneducated, economically lower class people whose lives are being ruined because a slumlord is letting rats run through the building. And, you know, and so this common problem you get in urban America. If you take the problem to be, well, there's rats in the building and asbestos and these guys are, you know, they're violating all kinds of housing laws, certainly the easiest way to solve that problem is to get a couple really good lawyers and sue the landlord in court and fix this stuff, right? And that's often the most efficient way to ameliorate the specific problem. But that does absolutely nothing to build power and capacity in the community of people that were in that housing project. Now they're just like, wow, how nice that one group of rich, educated white guys beat up on the other group of rich, educated white guys who are oppressing us. And it re-instills in people the social message that you don't really have any power in the society. You don't have any autonomy. So an anarchist organizer will say, no, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is facilitate community meetings and get this whole community to go on rent strike, say, or even let the specific tactics arise out of the group. And, you know, certainly you might have some expertise. You might want to talk to people about what their legal options are. But the idea would be to bring about the specific change in the housing project through a process that lets people practice running their own lives and, and building things. And it's a very different model of being an organizer, and it requires letting go. The three of us in this room, and most of the people listening to this, whoever they are, are privileged in various ways. At the very least, you know, even if we've got some, you know, gay trans person of color listening to this, they're highly educated. They know how to access podcasts. It occurred to them that a couple philosophers at the University of Chicago was a thing to listen to, which is an incredible dimension of power 
over, say, a lot of the people I live near. Um, and you need to put that, you need to learn to try to leave that privilege at the door if your goal is to build with people a community where everybody's, where everybody's participating. So, you know, a lot of times back when I was doing some work of this sort, I would just walk in and, and you know, and say, well, so we, we agreed we we're going to have a community meeting. Um, why don't you guys do that and I'll go do childcare? Because one of the concrete ways that keep huge numbers of people out of participating in the political process is they've got five kids and they don't have a babysitter because they don't have any money. So I would often just like volunteer to go play with the kids, which is kind of fun anyway. I like playing with kids. And, and you know, and, and gosh, you know, the guy volunteering to watch the kids, that's different. That's not what people expect in various communities. And seems to me that's, you know, it's just a trivial example in some ways, but that sort of, you know, being in service to the building of community, that's what the process of anarchist organizing is about. And of course you need to accomplish some things along the way or people are going to just go back to their, the habits they're used to. So, you know, we better do this competently in a way that actually does fix the damn apartment building. But boy, if you give people the sense that they can stand up to the landlord on their own, that's a vastly bigger victory than just fixing the plumbing is. So how do we get there from here? Well, it's a great question, and it's the big question. Everything we've been talking about, to my mind, and certainly not every person who's been an anarchist through history agreed with this, but everything we've been talking about, to my mind, tells you that one answer can't be right. We can't do it all with the one big revolution where we destroy the state. Why? Because if we just go to the barricades and we shoot all the capital, there was some particularly vitriolic Spanish anarchist who said, man will not be free until the last capitalist has been hung by the entrails of the last priest. And it's like, okay, you understand in that context why someone would say this, but you know, after you've got disemboweled people and hung people with their entrails, I'm not sure I'm going to trust you a great lot. I suspect we might be a society of sociopaths at this point. So, I mean, and I actually think if you look at revolutions that have, so for example, the South African Revolution is a great example. Unbelievably progressive. It was run by this huge coalition of people with different political views, different racial groups, different economic backgrounds, all operated around democratic principles. They have the most progressive constitution in the world. And yet, bottom line, it's a one-party state now, de facto. And it's a state that's willing to open fire on protesters. And why is that? Well, because they, there was this sense they won. We're in charge now. But the notion of being in charge was still a sort of legitimate conception in the way people thought about running society. I, I, I mean, that's a very crude portrait of South Africa. I mean, there's a lot of very... South Africa is nowhere near as bad as people make it out. But, but in some ways, I picked that example because I think that was one of the most successful revolutions in the history of the world and happened with the least violence. And, you know, you look at revolutions and the thing that comes after never lives up to the ideals of what went before. Because what you've got are a bunch of people that gained all their skills and all of their understandings under the old regime, which was authoritarian in all of these dimensions. Um, 
So my own view is that, right, we, a gradual process of building alternative direct action, directly democratic, deliberatively democratic, that is we argue about what to do, not just vote on what to do, cooperative, non-hierarchical organizations, and we have to let those expand. The IWW, the Radical Anarchist Union that still exists but was very big in the first part of the 20th century in the U.S., their uh, central slogan was build the new world in the shell of the old. Or if you look at this period I was talking about in Spain, what happened was that the general part of society that the radical unions started running just kept growing and growing and growing. So the Spanish Revolution that happened before the fascists came back and crushed everyone took about a week. Basically, people just said, yeah, we're done with this state when an election was stolen. And they already knew how to run businesses and courts and families and every aspect of society because they'd been practicing for you know 50 years and built this capacity in themselves to sort of opt out of the authoritarian structures of the state. Probably my favorite anarchist quote is from a very early anarchist, Gustav Landauer, who was actually a sort of Christian anarchist and I can't remember exact wording, but he said, um, you can smash a chair or a pane of glass but it's the crudest fetish to suppose that the state is something that can be smashed. The state is constituted by our ways of interacting with one another, and it will cease to exist when we learn to contract other ways of, of living together and being together in different ways. So to me, anarchism is a long process of building alternatives in which we gradually make ourselves better and then make it possible for us to build better organizations, which makes ourselves better. There may well be points at which, you know, the fascists come and try and crush us, right? COINTELPRO tried to destroy things along these lines that the Black Panthers were doing and succeeded. Franco crushed Spain. So we may need to defend ourselves at various points. I mean, whether violently or nonviolently is another independent dimension of this. Uh, so it's not to say that there won't be fights with power structures, but the fights are never the fundamental point. It's the constructive building of alternative egalitarian institutions that's the point. And the rest of that's just defending what you gain. Mark Lance, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Listening.